Our scripture is Ruth 1, 1 through 14. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and then the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Melon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. It's good to be with you. I'm Sid, and if you're in person, or you're on YouTube, we're glad you're here. If you're new, uh, if you're in person, we'd encourage you to go to the welcome table, um, and we'd love to know more about you. Um, uh, Feel free to sign up for our weekly newsletter. grab a coffee mug uh, and a pen, uh, so generous. And so you can, you're welcome to get those things. Uh, also, uh, if you're here virtually with us, uh, we're really glad you're here. And you, as Mark said earlier in the service, you can always email me at sit at northcrosschurch.com or at info at northcrosschurch.com. That goes to the church in general. Um, and if you're, you're kind of getting involved and you're putting your toe in the water, um, if you're new, just thanks for visiting. If you're getting, trying to get more involved and trying to figure out ways to plug in, you've been here for a while maybe, or you've been here, um, or you're just kind of getting acquainted with North Cross, there is a way, and it's just jump into a life group, try one out. It's never a bad time to try one out. Um, no, when you show up, no one's gonna sit there and go, how dare you? Um, they're gonna welcome you in, they're gonna want you to be with them, and you can try out multiple. No one's, you're not uh, committed once you go once. <laughs> so. Uh, that's our encouragement. That's how we do community at North Cross, and it's important to us. Well, I'm actually up here before the scripture reading. Some of you are saying, well, this is different for us. Uh, I actually want to introduce uh, the season that we're in and, and talk about a shift in the sermon series. Uh, historically and globally, the Christian church has marked the roughly 40-day period between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday as a season called Lent. And Lent, depending on your church tradition, has a lot of different and familiar and unfamiliar uh, meanings to you. And so we're all starting the same footing here. That's the attempt I'm going to try to do here. Uh, There is no biblical text that says you have to practice Lent. Uh, I want to be really clear about that. So uh, hear me. 
your individual or your family. You don't have to practice them. It's absolutely optional. But at the same time, Lent is this practice that we've been given as a Christian church uh, that's been used to anticipate Easter Sunday for thousands of years, from early in the Christian church history and globally to all the far-flung place, far places you can imagine. Um, and so there's some traditional and practical wisdom that's at work here and is important. And really at its best, Lent is grounded in the Bible. It's grounded in biblical imagery and themes and texts, and it's seen over and over and throughout scripture and when it's practiced well. So what is Lent about? Here's a sentence definition of what Lent is for. Lent is a time of self-examination and preparation for Easter. <laughs> That's all it is. A time of self-examination and preparation for Easter. Uh, there is a special emphasis on journeying spiritually with Jesus to the cross, and that involves self-examination. Examination of our hearts, our sin, and our self-centeredness that nailed Jesus to that cross. At the same time, there's a turning of Lent that's repeatedly in hope to that reality of Jesus' resurrection victory over the grave and over all of our sins in and through our helplessness and his strength. And that's really what Lent is about. So if you do choose to give up something for Lent, this isn't just like your time for a mulligan or a redo on New Year's, okay? Um, the resolutions you couldn't quite get to. It's actually that feeling of lack and really probably failure if you give up something hard. That's meant to remind you of Jesus's power. That in his sweet satisfaction and not our self-control or our willpower. We got to turn from that. And that's the point of Lent. If you're looking for an additional resource, there, I think there's still some out there. There's, we're reading through a book together, Sinclair Ferguson's To Seek and to Save. That's a great resource for Monday through Saturday of, your Lent, of looking at what Lent means. And he walks through the end of the Gospel of Luke. And uh, there's also inserted in that book a church prayer guide. And so really, that's to set up this. All, for the next several Sundays, we are going to, as a church, lean into the radical honesty of Lent. And the idea here is that we're going to get radically honest about the world, about ourselves, and about Jesus. And the book of Ruth, which we're going to study together, is this way of getting radically honest, even about life's most difficult parts the difficult things in life, but also without losing the promise and the power of Jesus's love for us. And we'll see this in verse one of our passage this morning, but this verse tells us the setting, and sometimes we forget this in the story of Ruth. The setting is very, the very real world. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. If you've ever read the book of Judges, the days when the judges ruled, um, you know that Ruth is set in a time of chaos, blood, gore, violence, disorder, and famines. And this is just honestly reflecting the real world that we see in the news. And also, so many of us have these pieces, these elements, these sharp edges in our own fully told stories. So yes, the technology has changed, the names and the people and the places are different, but the disasters, the addictions, the hurt, the power politics are all still there. And so you could say the setting of the book of Ruth and what we're going to look at reminds us that life can be rated R, TV mature. <laughs> but thankfully, the Bible's radical honesty doesn't stop with the darker side of living in a fallen world. It also pushes us into love by inviting us into the intimate history of ordinary people 
acting out a very personal love in difficult and often painful circumstances. And really, this is a short but painstaking uh, story of two widowed women and a forgotten farmer. But please don't miss the center. Don't miss the subtle, uh, sometimes subtle, main point of Ruth. Behind people like Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, in our everyday lives, looking for love and looking to love others and God, there is the love of God himself. And that love of God is humming sometimes in the background, but sometimes it's flashing forth like lightning in ways that we can't help but see. And so I'm calling our series uh, for Lent in the, in the book of Ruth, Love in the Real World. It's love in the real world. And our passage from chapter one is gonna tenderly and honestly speak to what it feels like to live in the real world, including life's darker moments. And so we can see God's bold love at work and honestly, the strength and the steadfastness that God's love gives us to live out of. But before um, I try and discuss this love anymore, I need to invite Holly up and she's gonna read the scripture for us again. Um, these first 14 verses of chapter one. Our scripture is Ruth 1, 1 through 14. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and then the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. I could have just left this up here. It's okay. We'll do that again. Okay. So uh, one friend, Walt, wrote a letter to another friend, Philip. And they had gotten to know each other for several years. Uh, they had met at a public speaking engagement. Walt's full name is Walter Wangeren Jr. And Philip's full name is Philip Yancey. Anyway, Walt was in Cameroon, Africa, and he wrote Philip a letter 
uh, about his experience there. And in this letter, in vivid language, Walt tells Philip about an awful sight that he just can't unsee. It's two black birds that are perched on the back haunches of a donkey. And those birds were viciously pecking at an open wound of the still alive, still standing donkey. And Walt describes the African driver he's with moaning and wishing out loud for a revolver to put the donkey out of its misery. Walt and his African companion returned the same way three days later, and they again saw that same donkey, but instead of standing, the donkey was now lying down on its side. And they were but still alive, and there were five birds, not two birds, perched on the top of this beast of burden. As Walt passed by yet again, these birds paused, pecking at the muscle tissue of that still-opened wound of that donkey, and they stared at the car with their crimson, blood-stained beaks. We can struggle to see or to unsee the world this vividly. The details of this world, that honestly, can't we? This scene from Cameroon, uh, Walt Walt Wengren is writing about, isn't even human suffering. It's a donkey. (laughs) But for 21st century Americans, even maybe especially 21st century Christian Americans, it can be so hard to deal honestly with life, with the darker sides of life. We can get so busy denying things like death and sickness and poverty But passages like Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, invite us to move beyond our present tense distracting distracting of ourselves and our future worrying. And here we enter into a story about very good and a very bad world. And we stand with this older widow, Naomi, and her struggle for integrity, right? To be and to see the world whole. Within five verses, we see the light the edges of light of her world, marriage, children, daughters-in-law. And then we also see the dark fragments, famine, and then a woman left without her two sons and her husband. And the questions of verses six through 14 flow fast and furious, don't they? Can Naomi honestly see the sadness of her life and not be flooded by it? How do we see the sadness of our lives and our world and our personal life stories and not get flooded or worse, just shut down completely about it. What does love with integrity look like in this real eyes wide open world that we live in? Well, God gives us a real life scenario in Ruth chapter one, verses one through 14 to show us what whole W-H-O-L-E love looks like. Love with integrity looks like really seeing life's sadness God showing up in the sadness and us showing up with God's love for other people. Those are the three points of our outline. Love with integrity looks like really love, really seeing life's sadness. Okay. Verses one through five, looking at love's losses or life's losses with love. Love looks like showing up, God showing up in life's saddest places. Verse six. And then third and finally, verses seven through 14, love looks like you and me, us showing up with God's love for others. And that's what we're going to look at this morning as we look at this passage from uh, the book of Ruth. 
And we're gonna start with a passage starts with verses one through five and love as seeing life's losses. So as I just suggested, if you look there, verses one through five, as I just suggested, um, there's this really severely short summary of life and all of its brilliance light and all of its uh, darkest darks. But for my, my Naomi here in this passage, the goods of family and survival and marriage are shaded over by the end of these five verses, aren't they? They're shaded over by the famine and the death. First, Naomi's husband dies, verse three, and then both of her sons die in verse five. And if you're anything like me, you just kind of glanced just to look at those deaths, you kind of glanced over famine and what famine meant and what it means still uh, in our world, but especially in that day and especially in the far flung places, the global places of our world. And so I'm gonna give you a, a, a vivid description from another part of the Bible from the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter six. Here's what famine looked and felt like. And if you're offended, it's in the Bible. <laughs> and there was a great famine in Samaria until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver. That's 32 pounds of silver, by the way. And the fourth part of a quart of dove's dung for five shekels, that's five pounds of silver. That's how hungry they are. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, help my Lord, O king. And the king said, Esther, what's your trouble? She answered, this woman said to me, give me your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. And it just gets worse from there. You can cover your eyes. You can, close your, you, can, you can close your eyes, you can cover your ears if you want to. But the point is, once again, the Bible truthfully talks about reality. It just does. It's saying we live in a rated R, TV mature world. And catastrophes like famine cause horrible, almost unimaginable suffering. And therefore, verse one mentioned of the famine in the land, not to mention the deaths of spouses and children, these matter of fact notices usher us into people's very real nightmares. And so part of the reason we struggle to stop and to sit with the darker moments, the world's sadness, events like the war in Ukraine or the private heartaches that we carry around or our family members or friends carry, that we struggle to sit with these things because things like famine and death bring up so many hard questions immediately, don't they? Like why? Why do famines and why do deaths, like premature deaths happen? Why did that particular famine or that particular premature death happen? And sometimes we can't know why, but sometimes we can know why. So there's sometimes where we know why bad things happen and there's other times where we simply just can't know why bad things happen. For instance, the phrase in the days when the judges ruled in verse one, gives us a strong clue about why Naomi's particular famine happened. The book of Judges tells us that these famines, and this one in particular probably, was a consequence of ancient Israel breaking its vow. Recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 28, to worship God alone and act in holiness, not viciously or violently. And so this famine was a curse on the land because they broke an oath with God at that time period. But even for Naomi in the book of Ruth, some of her suffering is still mysterious. We can't know exactly why her husband and her sons died. 
Yes, Elimelech and Naomi made a series of questionable decisions, clearly. They left the land of Israel and, and that God had promised to take care of them in. And as well as Naomi chose to marry her sons off to women whose chief god, Chemosh, required child sacrifice. But it's an oversimplification to make these questionable decisions responsible for three deaths, the three deaths we see in chapter one of Ruth. Like complicated modern issues, such as childhood poverty, there were likely multiple factors at play and unique combinations in each case. There's like this hard percentage, hard to kind of figure out percentage, a mixture of circumstance and choices and maybe even genetics. After all, we don't know exactly how Elimelech and Malon and Killian died. We have no idea from the passage. And so in our present day sufferings, it's super important that we can often make a bad situation worse by thinking we figured out the reason for our hardship. We think and sometimes say unfair things like I'm the only cause for my complicated misfortune. Grasping for control, we can sometimes torture ourselves with self-blame. Okay, we can say, I do this. I, I mean, I do this all the time. I wake up early in the morning, oftentimes, and I'm spinning, lying in my bed. And I'm tracing back all this, this thing I feel sick or uh, I'm looking at the situation super stressful in my life or hasn't gone well. And I'm thinking about all of the bad decisions I made to get there. <laughs> Just like a beeline tunnel. But was God really punishing me? Were all those other people's actions really up to me? I'm second guessing our self-blame here. I'm pushing against it gently. I'm also second guessing our, our tendency, my tendency, all of our tendencies to blame other people completely. Because I want to push us out of ourselves and I wanna push us towards God. Because while the Bible may not clearly answer the why question, it does give us a clear how answer. How do you handle tragedies like famine and premature death? Over and over and over again, whether it's the book of Psalms or Revelation or later in chapter one of the book of Ruth, God's people take these tragedies, they look at tragedies that happen to them honestly, and they process them by pouring out their sadness to God. Praying out loud, often as a community, about what shouldn't be. We get to tell God exactly how it is with us. That's the privilege of being his child. And we get to ask, where are you in all of this hurt and heartache? Verses one through five invite us into the Bible's honest realism. Life can be dark and it can be sad and it can be painful, but these verses also invite us into something more. We get to see that God actually pursues us in our pain. God comes to us and we notice him when we get still and we look at the darkness directly. Whether, you're, whether that looking is like a silent acknowledgement of all that's gone on, it could be a crying out to God in prayer. It could just be carefully listening to someone else's pain. In the words of a former professor of mine, Steve Brown, when you face the pain, Jesus comes. Jesus hangs out around our pain 
And when we run from pain, we run from Jesus. Jesus hangs out around pain. And when we run from pain, we run from Jesus. And really, verse 6 is a wondrous case in point of exactly how Jesus hangs around pain. There we see the surprising way that God shows up in life's saddest places. Our second main point this morning for the sermon. Verse 6 tells us Naomi had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. There's so much in this half verse that's there, right? The Lord personally visits Israel, a land suffering under its own cursed consequences, defeat, right? Failure, barrenness, a land suffering so badly. And then God comes to these people who are self-absorbed and starving and desperate scratchers of the earth. And he gives these people what they most want and least deserve, food. Then, then God reaches out to Naomi. Naomi, who is knee-high in the fields of Moab, in the midst of her highly questionable decision-making, and he, and he tells her, her decision-making to flee her people and to flee the promised land. And then really verse six is a clinic in the way that God works, right? God practices this thing called grace. Grace. God is in the business of doing good for us when there's no compelling reason to do so and every reason not to do so. <laughs> okay, so grace is God doing good for us when there's no compelling reason for him to do so and every reason for him actually to not do so. God visited and did good for his people, the people he had every reason to shun. And God did this grace to Israel and he did it to Naomi mysteriously. He had visited in such an ordinary and dismissible way, right? That many might've actually missed this moment. God brought rain to a dried up sun-stroked land and told Naomi about it by another person's mouth. That is God reached out to Naomi through someone speaking a message of good news. God sent an ordinary somebody to Naomi in her real life desolation. There Naomi was, eyes swollen with grief, mouth creased with pain, and her only companions are these two other widows in a male-dominated world. No physical protection, no economic viability, no social status. And God spoke to her there and then, and he spoke good news, a gospel that changed everything for her. So this leads me to ask a really good question for all of us to consider. Where is the painful darkness that you and I struggle to sit in today? Where is the painful darkness that you and I struggle to sit in today? Is it primarily our own darkness or is it primarily someone else's? Is the agony that we feel for them and for ourselves some combination of choices and circumstance and genetics? Maybe. Will we stay in that thought? Will we stay in that feeling or that conversation so the Lord can visit us in that space? Will we trust that Jesus has become a curse for us on the cross so God cannot actually be angry at us anymore? And he only can mean good for us. 
Can we trust that our lives are not merely the sum of our good and bad choices? There's something operating called grace. Can we trust that God does and can show up mysteriously in surprising and ordinary ways? I think some of you may have heard the story before, but I love telling it. Um, I have a friend of mine, Mike, and Mike, He's actually a fellow pastor, and he was doing some home repair, which I can imagine if he's like me, is bad at. And he fell off of a ladder that was pretty high up, and he landed awkwardly and hard on his side. And so he decided that he probably should go to the emergency room, and so he went to the emergency room, and they do what you do in an emergency room when you fall off a ladder. They took a bunch of x-rays and and scans, and uh, just to be safe, to make sure that Mike hadn't busted something internally or uh, broken something. And in the midst of that process, they discovered a massive tumor on Mike's kidney. Like it would have been for all of us, the news and that, sh- that shook Mike deeply, and he just ha- he went into a spiral of fear. He asked himself, am I gonna lose my job? Am I gonna be able to take care of my family? He asked, who's gonna give away my 13 and and 10 year old daughters in marriage. He said, who's going to teach my five-year-old son to shave? And he was forced to face his losses, to see the sadness that a tumor can bring. But then he told me a surprising and ordinary way that God showed up for him. God said, I will be with you, Mike. And he did it by family to side neighbors and church acquaintances showing him to pray over him. The surgery's success, a hollowed out feeling where a kidney was, but the tumor that he would not have known about if not for an accident falling off a ladder was completely removed. And when they did the biopsy, it had no, no cancer. The tumor was benign. And perhaps the most surprising thing of all, with all of that good news, was that he's, he's recovering in his hospital bed with his wife at his side and an elderly, elderly woman in the church comes and visits Mike in his recovery. And she looks at him and doesn't say a word and she comes up to him and grabs both sides of his face and plants a giant kiss on his mouth <laughs> in front of his wife. <laughs> and then she, look, she pulls back and she says, Mike, I love you. And when he saw my face when he told this story, <laughs> He said, look, she was well into her 70s, Sid. This was not an adulterous kiss, I promise you. Instead, Mike began to tear up as he remembered the way that he saw and he heard from Jesus in that moment. The Lord had visited his hospital bed in the most ordinary of forms. But God, through this elderly woman, did and said the most surprising things. You see, God didn't answer Mike's fears, his sadness, his prayerful complaints with an explanation about why. Instead, God has sent a relationship. He sent a person, and what a person. A reality that Naomi would have begun to understand in verse 14. Because you see, God didn't explain why the three loves of her life died. He sent Ruth to cling to her. He sent Ruth to hug and to hold on tight to the back of her knees and never let go. It's the same for us. Two years after listening to Mike's cancer story, I had my own. It's true. Often in the darkest places, 
the saddest and the scariest times, God doesn't choose to explain his ways. He just doesn't. He won't just, and he also just doesn't send you like a get well card and a, and a bunch of flowers from heaven. That's not how he works. He also doesn't explain to you a notebook full of proofs for why this happened. You know what he does? He sends a person. First, Jesus, the son of God, came to earth 2,000 years ago, and now God sends Jesus' body. He sends someone to sit in the dark with you. In Jesus' name, someone like me, or someone like the person in the row over right now, who won't know what to say, but who comes anyway. And that's really the heart of our third and final point this morning. Love looks like showing up with God's love for other people. When Naomi hears of God's visit, of his still burning love for her and her distant friends and family, Naomi can't help but start to see herself differently. She begins to see herself as God. She's an Israelite who belongs in Israel once again. And so she journeys there. And she begins and tries to return to who she is, to literally go back from where she's from, what she calls home. And we say that, we see this in verse seven. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah, verse seven. And the word for return, this Hebrew word shuv, is the same word that the rest of the Old Testament uses for turning back to God, for this word that we sometimes call repentance. And so given the context, it's likely that Naomi's return journey home was not just going back to where she's from. It was actually a spiritual return trip to God. In this sense that God is putting someone right in her, putting something right in her, visiting and providing for her amid her sadness actually turns, moves Naomi's life completely in the way that she treats Orpah and Ruth in this passage. And verses eight through 10, Naomi takes her eyes off of herself and she sees that she is dragging her daughters-in-law into a foreign land, into a state of permanently poor widowhood. And so Naomi offers what Paul Miller calls a stubborn love, a love without an exit strategy. Go, return each of you to, your, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as he has dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Verses eight and nine. Naomi is giving up any hope of physical, economic, or social security so that Orpah and Ruth can have that kind of hope in their lives. Let's just stand there for a moment at that crossroads, that dusty crossroads in the Middle East, ancient Middle East, just a moment or two longer. Let's stand with Naomi. She's acknowledging she's not the president. She's not a relief worker. She doesn't have the social services clearance as a case manager. She's not powerful enough to promise outcomes or change the system. But Naomi is offering what she has. She's giving her chance at comfort for their chance at comfort. She's giving her counted on security and significance for their security and their significance in the land of Moab. 
And I guess the question for us is, what would it look like to humbly give away what's precious to you to others? To start with, what would it look like to give away our short-term ambitions, or at least to hold them more loosely? What would it look like to give away our free, quote-unquote, time? We often enter rooms like this place, the sanctuary, or we enter an office, or we enter a home, and we ask the question, where do I fit in? That's a good question. But what if we asked, who's hurting here? What if we looked around and said, how can I invite those people into my life? Or maybe some of us need to ask, how can I free them to live their life, not mine? But how do we get those resources? How do we get that motivation to see the world whole, both the sad darkness of it and the bright, brilliant light of it? Yet how do we also at the same time forget about our circumstances long enough to focus on someone else and their circumstances? Like Naomi, we've got to listen for the big, small, and surprising ways that God works. The way he visits his people oftentimes right in the middle of famines and grief, right in life's bloodiest moments. This is what Walt Wangerin discovered, because you see, he went on to write his friend Philip that the blackbirds gouging themselves on that wounded donkey who's barely alive, these birds are called oxpeckers. And oxpeckers' beaks are not crimson from blood, they're crimson from birth. And what they weren't, they weren't trying to kill that pitiful donkey on the side of the African road. They weren't even trying to get an easy or cheap meal at another animal's expense. Oxpeckers don't further, further injure wounded animals like donkeys or oxes, oxen. No, they clean open wounds by eating out the maggots breeding there. So those five oxpecker birds were in fact making it possible for the donkey to live. And Philip goes on to describe his friend Walt's ministry using that image. He says, some call Walt's realism about life gloomy or pessimistic. Maybe it looks like he has blood on his hands all the time. <laughs> but Walt names the reality of our fallen planet and it's all of its brokenness. He writes to heal that we might live, to put disorder into order. And really, this is both the Christian promise and the Christian calling and invitation to us all. To see reality whole, the light and the dark, the good and the bad, and to hear again the good news that when we're waist deep in life's sadness, Jesus visits dried up dreams. He comes to hospital beds and he kisses us there full on on the lips in front of everybody. And that news is surprising enough to make us want to laugh or to cry. But it's also ordinary enough to make us want to show up and to tell the whole truth about life, to put disorder back into order for someone or maybe it helps us to quietly clean out another person's physical or emotional wounds, to be misunderstood, but to heal that they, 
that you and I might live. Would you pray with me again? Father, thank you uh, for this passage and all its grit, all its gritty reality. Um, And thank you for the fact that you don't leave us in this and help our unbelief about that, that you're at work and you're visiting. And I pray that we'd recognize you from afar and rejoice when you're near. We ask for this grace with faith. In your name, Jesus. Amen.